Hello and welcome to Fire Science Show episode 21. Great to have you here as always. Before we jump to the episode, I have some housekeeping items. I've recently observed a spike of new listeners to the podcast with the recent episodes and I welcome you all. I hope you have a great experience staying with the Fire Science Show. On the site of the Fire Science Show, the thefirescienceshow.com, I've uh, started up selecting the episodes to a certain themes of the podcast. So that allows you explore and experience the podcast in a more organized way. And if you just join us now, there's 20 great episodes waiting for you to be discovered. So I hope that's a great experience for you. And I hope you really enjoy that. I would also like to thank everyone who's supporting the podcast through the donations to Buy Me Coffee on my webpage. I really appreciate those donations. They allow me to maintain the high quality of the podcast and pay for all the technical aspects of doing this in a slightly easier way. So appreciate your donations and yeah, it helps me more than you think. Thank you so much. So for the episode today, last week, I've hosted Professor Brian Mitchum, who said so much profound things about the shape of fire safety engineering and how can we build it better together. It, it was a great episode and a fantastic discussion for myself. Today, I have an engineer who's actually putting these things into motion. He's uh, someone who's dealt with wind engineering, earthquake engineering, fire engineering, and has a head full of ideas how we turn the buildings we design slightly better environment for firefighters. And the topic of today's episode is firefighter resiliency or buildings resilient for firefighting. And my guest is Ali Ashrafi. He's with Thornton Tomasetti Company but also aligned with uh, Columbia University, where he's lecturing wind and earthquake engineering for like 10 years and recently has started structural fire engineering course. I hope it's, it's going great. Ali has some great thoughts on how the design influences the battleground the firefighters will be fighting on. How can we think about the design in a way that promotes easier firefighting or safer firefighting and how it all aligns into the performance-based engineering framework. So if you've enjoyed the episode with Brian Mitchum, you will enjoy this one for sure because it's like the actions that we need to take to fulfill Brian's prophecies. And if you haven't heard the episode with Brian, you should, but I'm sure you will like this one as well. So... Let's not prolong this anymore. Let's welcome Alia Shrafi in this episode. Uh, so, yeah, let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wigzinski, and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. I'm here today with Ali Ashrafi, who's with uh, Thornton Tomasetti. Hello, Ali. Good to have you here. Hi, Wojciech. Thank you for having me. Really happy to have you here. 
And today we're discussing a very important subject of uh, structure fire engineering, the firefighter resiliency in, in the buildings we design. But as you are a fire engineer who is located in New York, we are three years after the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. From your view, like you're in Big Apple, how did this tragedy change the world of structural fire engineering and maybe structural fire engineering from your perspective? First of all, thank you for um, having me here. And to some extent, the... Um timing of it was a coincidence that we are yeah. at the 20th anniversary, but it does bring up a lot of the discussions. And the events of that day and the collapse of the buildings instructed in things that are similar, but things that are also different. Obviously, those events were, were unique. It was, we had collapses that were a result of many things, starting with massive planes hitting buildings and taking mm -hmm. a big part of the structure out and taking the fireproofing out and then a massive fire on multiple floors going with no response. So it, it, in some ways, that's very different from any other building that we designed for. That's something to highlight that in any standard design that we're looking at, even more resilient designs, we're never designing for that level of damage to a building. Having said that, you look at what happened and there are certainly lessons learned. First of all, those buildings, actually, they were pretty resilient. A lot of people got out of mm -hmm. those buildings in spite of the massive damage to the buildings. And that yeah. highlights the role of structural stability and resilience of a building that can take some level of damage. And, in, and even in a typical case, that would be a massive fire in a building, right? You might have a fire that starts and your sprinklers... They don't control it, 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 it grows, and now you have something massive acting on your mm. building. It, it highlights the importance of that resilience, certainly. It does highlight the importance of how the different pieces of design have to work together. So it was the building that stood for some duration. It was also people were able to evacuate the building in that time period. When you look at what happened, almost anyone that was below the floors where there was the impact, they got out. It was the people who were above and they, they basically lost their means of egress. It's those people who unfortunately could not And the ones who, the... who came into the building, yeah. Absolutely. And that's where the firefighter safety issue comes in. And it again highlights challenge that we designed these buildings and... The ultimate goal, the first goal is life safety. And when you look at life safety, it's occupants and it's firefighters. And occupants of a building, mm. you want to get have them get out. The chances of someone being in a building with a massive fire in their lifetime is not very large. We're, we're designing to mm. minimize the risk of that to people. But any individual, the risk that they're exposed to is small in their lifetime. But if you're a firefighter, that is your job. And that's something that you want to do for 20, 25, 30 years and do it day in, day out. Go do your job, save people's lives, but also go back home to your family and be safe and not be physically damaged in this process, right? So when we're talking about safety, it's the people who are most affected and we should be really thinking about is firefighters who do go into these buildings at the worst time every day of their life. 
It's difficult to frame 9-11 as a success story. There is something to that, that the buildings could have collapsed much sooner, killing all of them who were below the impact point, for example. And it could have been a much bigger tragedy. I, I don't know if you can like weigh the tragedies, how big there are, but it, it was a huge tragedy. But it, it could have went different. It could have taken a lot more lives. And in, in this way, this structural resiliency, like the building survived for, for as long as it could. It's interesting to learn how buildings survive and what makes them survive that long. And how can we make uh, it survive to meet our objectives? And this is something I, I really wanted to touch in this um, episode. In this podcast, I had some really cool interviews. And between me, my audience and you, you are the only one who's not going to hear them because this is the episode that's going to air before your episode. So you're in the most unfortunate position here, but I'm, I'm going to tell you what there were about. I've interviewed Danny Hopkin from OFR Consultants who mentioned with whom we discussed mass timber in fire, engineered timber in fire. And Danny brought up the, the issue of objectives. Like fire resistance is a horrible objective because for a small building, it means something completely different than for a tall building. I had Brian Mitchum, who uh, told a lot about this fire safety being a social technical system of multiple things that have to align together. And again, the missing link in the systems are the objectives, in a way, that start building a new world with better performance-based engineering and better engineering overall. First, we should be clear on what the objectives are, because if your objective is to have 60-minute fire resistance on your columns, that's uh, not a great objective after all. It's a compliance goal, not, not an objective. When we've connected, you uh, told about this firefighter resiliency. And for me, wow, that's an objective that we don't really often consider. We focus on egress, we focus on survivability of the structure long enough to not create this enormous harm. But as you mentioned, there are people whose job is to go into such buildings. And in many countries, it's handled in different ways. And I wondered how, in your view, we could implement this objective of firefighter resiliency or the ability of the buildings to be firefighted, as I understand it, into the, the design process. Because for me today, it's not there. I agree with you. And I do look forward to listening to these interviews when they <laughs> air out. But you mentioned a couple of really key points there. One of the most important things is a design should have an objective. And when you look at how we design for different risks, sometimes we're more explicit about that objective, sometimes we're less explicit. By training, I'm a structural engineer. And when I'm looking at fire, that's where my expertise lies. But one thing that is really key here is these are complex, multifaceted issues. And so no matter where each of us is coming from, what the discipline is, we should be designing in the context of overall safety goals. And so there should be dialogue between these designs. These are not individual pieces of design. They should talk to each mm. other. And the way that most designs are today, that doesn't happen. Yeah. I want to add that when it comes to safety of the structure in fire, what we do right Today, the common practice, which is a prescriptive practice, and you mentioned mm -hmm. it's based on the fire resistance terminology, is 
really not explicit. So in a fire resistance terminology, you take specific pieces of a building and you put them in a furnace for some duration and you say it passed and that's great. But that actually doesn't tell you anything about how the building as a system is going to respond to the fire. And if I want to bring it back to the question of firefighter safety, I, I see really three things that are key and they should speak to each other. One of them is stability of the building. The building is the battlefield where you're fighting the fire. If someone's going in, they need to make sure that the building will not collapse in them. That is the baseline, right? So the structural stability is a really important piece. The second piece is evacuation, right? So mm -hmm. we're doing all of this because we want to save lives. You want to make sure that, A, either you can evacuate everyone from the building safely. That includes, after everyone comes out, that includes firefighters being able to do their job yeah. and coming out. Or if your design requires you to have some people in the building, or if the building is, think of the really high-rise building, think of a complex space, or think of a place where you have people who are sick, who are disabled, who cannot evacuate easily. And so you, your design has to be, you really allow them to stay somewhere safe in a building until the fire is dealt with. That's that second question, the question of evacuation. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece of this is firefighting. And firefighting needs things. There's an infrastructure in a building. If you look at, again, a large complex building, th there's a limit to what you can do from outside. Firefighters really have to come inside. They need to get to where they need to get to. And that could be tens of floors up. They might need specific elevator access. They're competing for the stairs with people who want to get out of the building. And then they're relying on the building system regarding standpipes or availability of sprinklers to help them fight the fire. Those three pieces are all relevant and they should speak to each other. They have an impact on each other. So for example, if you know that the building will survive a fire and even if you don't do anything the building will not collapse on you that might allow you to design the building in a way that people move from somewhere to a safe place in the building it's a better easier evacuation problem mm. it allows the firefighters to do their job much more safely and focus the effect the effort more on firefighting whereas if yeah. you have a building where you have this risk of a building collapsing and people are in, inside the building, it forces the firefighters to take more risk. They have to make decisions that ideally they don't want to make, they wouldn't want to make, but they have to put their lives at risk because there are other lives at risk, right? And so these mm. things have to really speak to each other as part of the... You said the firefighters can risk their lives entering the building. And you said that the firefighters would have to enter the building. But... This is also an objective. If the building is supposed to survive, is it supposed to survive and be refurbished immediately to allow operation immediately after the fire? Or we just want everyone out of the building and just whatever the final outcome of the fire is, it is what it is. 
And these are like three objectives. You can design a building to survive the fire uh, unscathed. Uh, you can have a building that, that will require refurbishment, but it's reusable. And then you have a building in which the safety is determined by the ability of everyone to not die in it while having a fire. If you are, let's say, a worker in a building, these objectives are not that interesting for you. You are mostly interested in saving your life from the fire. If you are the owner of the building, is probably affected by the technical complexity of the building, operations that are being held with that, the business impact that the destruction of the building will have on your operations and the insurance you signed up for. So these are the things that will determine if you are okay with the building being burned to a ground and you erect a new one or you will really need one that's saved. But if you're a firefighter, I mean, that's a tough choice, you know. Should I go and save that building for the sake of a saving a building or or should I just minimize the collateral damage around it? Obviously, when there is uh, life at risk, it's a completely different topic because uh, from my experience with firefighters, they will always go in to save lives because the guys are heroes. But from just the build environment perspective, I, I'm not sure if the objective of saving the building at any cost is... Is a feasible one. And now let's go back to the design phase. How big changes in the design has to be made to allow for these objectives to be done? Like how much, uh, I don't know, fire suppression, fire protection I have to put in my building to go from just everyone out and everyone safe into the building is unscathed after the fire. A couple of really good questions that you raised. So I'll try to address um, we can break it. both break one it. at a time. So... Yeah. It, you're absolutely right. The objective of the design really does depend on what you're designing for and what's the context. And I'll give you the range. And, and there is no one answer. The, mm -hmm. the point of the design is the design should be appropriate for your building and its yeah. environment. So on one end of it, let's think of a smaller residential buildings in a suburb. You have a two-story building the risk of a collapse of the building once people come out is it doesn't have any other impact bro broader than that building. In that case, most of the codes, really the provisions are there to make sure that people can get out safely, right? The building might burn out. You could build the building of combustible materials. There is no expectation because the consequences are manageable. Mm -hmm. The other end of the spectrum is think of... I'm in New York, so I'm going to use New York as the baseline, mm -hmm. but you're in this dense urban area. And let's say you have a building that's large enough, substantial enough. You have a building to the right and a building to the left and subway in front of your building. Even if you get everyone out of the building, is the collapse of this building at the end of that process an acceptable Goal? Probably not, but the codes today do not get you there. The codes do not explicitly design, which is a problem. Like in, in, when it comes to fire, the design for safety is all implicit. Nothing is explicit there. That's one of the problems. But back to your point, you have a range from in one end, you can easily get people out and the building might fall down and that's okay. On the other end, you have to be able to get people out. And even if that's the case, really you don't want something to collapse because you are in a place where the, the damage you know, is not contained. So 
that's a conversation that's relevant for each design, but also it does impact the regulations. So if you're building in New York, the requirements on you are tougher than if you're building in a suburb, and rightfully so, because the consequences are more. That's that part of it. And then there are places where something in between might make sense, right? There are places where mm-hmm. you it might be challenging, but you could design and you can get people out. And once people are out, then yes, a partial collapse or something where you have to refurbish later, that's an acceptable solution. So mm-hmm. we don't want to say which one it is. It depends on the context. Now, going back to what it takes to design a building such that it can really survive a fire. And here I'm talking about um, more substantial structures. I'm not talking about a two-story residential lightwood Mm -hmm. building, right? I'm talking about more substantial buildings. It's doable and it's actually not extremely challenging. And if you do it right, a lot of times it's actually coming with cost savings. And the reason for that is the current approach to safety in fire is prescriptive. And so you're doing stuff and you're hoping for safety, but you're doing it without an analysis. And for that process to work, you have to be really conservative in some parts of that process. Whereas in a design where you're explicitly designing for safety, your goal is very clear, but you do things that really help you get there. You don't waste your resources in places where you do something and it's really not providing any impact. And so in a lot of these scenarios, you might be able to actually reduce your cost, not because you're doing less, you're doing stuff smarter. You're actually designing as opposed to doing some general thing and hoping that it's going to be safe. And this is something that we see in other contexts. For example, for seismic risk, there's also a simpler way of designing and there is performance-based design in which you really go through a lot more detail to design the building, looking at its actual behavior and the type of damage that you're going to get. And what we see there is we spend a lot more thought and effort in the design, but the designs typically end up being more resilient and cheaper because you're doing a smart design. So it's not about cost per se, it's it's that no one designs it that way today for fire or for, for most of the buildings. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that is in principle impossible to be answered. <laughs> so who should decide if we should pursue this particular objective? Because we're in this, I think, loophole where... If it is the firefighters to decide if they want to have the buildings uh, a bunker or or just something that people can escape with, they I, I believe they may not have the required amount of knowledge in terms of structural fire engineering or or structural engineering overall to truly judge if one design is superior to another. It's very difficult. And in the end, this flattens the discussion to probably the fire resistance periods because this is the easiest way to proxy the fire resistance. If it's the fire experts like me or you, we don't know uh, the firefighters craft. We learn from them. We talk to them. You or I, maybe you have been, but I've never been in a situation where I was fighting for my life, holding a, a hose in my hand and praying that the fire goes off. I've never been in such a situation. So I don't really know what is the mindset of a person fighting for their life and trying to save the life of another person in the building that is due to collapse. 
So I don't also think we are competent to say, okay, this is the objective we should go for, because maybe in this way we unintendedly force the firefighters to enter a building because we say, okay, the objective was that the building will survive anything. So it, it creates a... If they trust us as the fire experts, they might think, okay, it's super safe and so on. And that, that might not be the case because we are unable to see all the fires. And if you're just an authority, if you're a, a person who, who writes the law, you are neither firefighter nor fire engineer. Like in many places, you would be one of them. And I congratulate these places. But in most cases, you are neither of them. You're a politician or something. And then... All your knowledge comes from the advisors that you have. And this can lean to one side, to another side. And it's, it's very difficult. How we get to this thought-out objective of which buildings are due to stand, which buildings are due to fail, which buildings are due to just allow people to escape, and how we implement these uh, risk levels in a way. We're in the objective area. If the objective is not sharp, not, not, not really clear how do you design, right? Okay, I love the questions. And again, you raised multiple good questions. I'll try to <laughs> answer it from different perspectives. Design is never done in a vacuum, right? So yeah. when we come to do the design, it is within a specific jurisdiction and there are codes and standards. And there's a reason for that. When you look at the process mm -hmm. of how those uh, codes and guidances are put together, you see all these stakeholders coming to the table and having the discussion because that should happen. That's absolutely right. Um, each of these stakeholders has this perspective that's relevant and valuable. And it's important to have those dialogues so that they're explicit about it. And for FIRE, just having the question is very important. What One of the things I'm hoping to highlight is no one asks that question of what the objective is, right? Mm -hmm. You are doing certain things in the code and there's a presumption of a level of safety. And certainly there's a level of safety, certainly for more common buildings. But the question is when you're looking at uh, these events that might be rare but really high impact what is the right way of dealing with them? So I think that's important to keep in mind. And then I'm going to give you two examples of where the process has worked well, or we have good examples. One is several years ago, a lot of collaborative work that was you know, included NIST, included UL, included a lot of fire departments. I know New York was involved, Chicago Fire Department was involved. They did a lot of testing. And the goal here was to bring the fire science into the firefighting process and see if the firefighting tactics could be improved in a way that mm -hmm. allowed for better, safer firefighting. So it's better for potential victims, for, for occupants of a building and for the firefighters. And that collaborative process resulted in improvements in how people fight fires today. And that's the good model. These discussions yeah. need to have everyone in them. Bringing this discussion closer to the question of performance of buildings in fire, we do have standards that speak to that. So, for example, in, in the U.S., uh, ASC 7, which is American Society of Civil Engineers, it's a document that talks about loading on buildings. There's an Appendix E that explicitly talks about performance-based 
designed for structures for fire and it talks about the objective and a, a bare minimum there is people have to be, be able to evacuate the building safely with, with a lot of safety factor on that and then you might and then you can have improved performance objectives where the building survives a fire for example and who decides if you go into the, the process always needs an approval so you would have the authority having jurisdiction so it could be a building department sometimes it could be a mm. fire department that makes that decision and that's a discussion right so you need to make sure yeah. that they understand the pieces but an important part of this process is to me third-party peer reviews because if you sit from if you look at it from a perspective of a department of building or a fire department they don't necessarily have in-house expertise to deal with all the complexities that could be relevant to a building they're infinite right Mm -hmm. no one department no one person has the answers right so at the same time they need to be able to make decisions that are safe and there is Definitely a healthy level of skepticism that should be there regarding the design team where, okay, you are the design team, but is there any pressure on you to do something that has an economic value, but maybe it compromises safety? That is the job of the Department of Building to be looking at those questions. And so I think in, in places like this, bringing third party experts from outside who have no interest in a project per se, so they're not swayed by, let's say, commercial interests, but they have that expertise could really help the process. That's how seismic performance-based design has been done in the U.S. and I'm sure in, in the rest of the world for many years. And it's a process that's, that allows people to come to a safe solution that, that makes sense. Yeah, I think having discussions is probably the best way i'm just i'm really terrified with some of these discussions where economic benefit or short-term benefit is being pushed as the objective of some stakeholders to kill the objectives of the other ones and this is uh when it usually goes goes horrible just um, let me hide yeah? something here so in that process i'm i'm describing the perspective from an authority that has to approve they they always yeah. have that concern and again you have to have that concern from that perspective If you come to us as engineers, for example, that are given the task of life safety, essentially, Mm -hmm. I see us as in the same function as a doctor has. So your job is to do something that is safe. Are there doctors out there that might make decisions that are not right and influenced by financial interest? Yes, there are. But that would be also a betrayal of their, their, you know, there is enough what they're doing, right? Engineers, good engineers would never compromise safety because because of something else. Our job is to do a design that's reasonable and safe, right? So you don't want to waste resources where it doesn't provide additional benefits, but providing that baseline level of safety is an absolutely part of the job. And for an engineer to not do that, or an architect or a safety official, not that it would never happen, but it's something that's obviously against ethics and laws and all that. So, yeah. Okay, let's move away from objectives for a, for a while. In one of your talks, you have mentioned something that took my interest and it may be the reason why I am talking about firefighter safety with a structural fire engineer. 
And this was the concept of how the decisions shape the firefighting context, like design decisions, because the way how we build buildings will determine the way how the fire can be fought in there. You mentioned the word battleground. The building is the battleground for the fire, if a fire emerges in it. And uh, if everything plays right, the battleground is in favor of the firefighters and can help them. If we take some decisions, uh, we can make the battleground tougher for the firefighters. And the environment is, is pacing at an insane speed with new technologies, new challenges that were not there 30 years ago. For start of this part of the interview, from your perspective, what are the key aspects in which the design truly does influence the firefighting context? In, in what way does designing the building shape the outcome in terms of how the fire can be fought in the building? There are a, a, a few factors, and some of this I've hit on before, but starting from maybe level of importance, I would say a building stability because that's okay. the context, right? And and that's something where it's not just about building stability, but knowledge of building stability. Mm. So let's say if you have a building and maybe the building ends up standing for the duration, but if you don't know that and that question mark is there, you have to make other decisions, right? Because again, mm. these are questions of life safety. Quantified knowledge of Building stability is certainly one of those things. There are rules of thumb for firefighters for that. But mm -hmm. if you look at these more complex buildings, a lot of those rules of thumb might not be really applicable. So being able to know, okay, if I go into this building and for this type of fire, the building will stand. Or if that's not the case, I'll have 60 minutes. I have 30 minutes. I have 90 minutes. But based on an analysis, I think that would be... And going into the building stability a little deeper, it's also not how long the building will stand, but how much uh, warning time it will give to the firefighters before it collapses. So this advanced, uh, it was also something from your talks that I, it really resonated with me that you just don't just need that 90 minutes of st stability because there is no timer. <laughs> the firefighter doesn't know if it's the 89th minute or something. It's also a matter that the the... Failure is not like immediate. It, it's a progressive collapse, for example, that gives a warning that people can exit. Correct. So that's one context, building stability. Mm. Related to that, which we talked about is evacuation. You yeah. need to be able to get people out of the building safely. And if there's a question there, then the firefighters will put their lives at risk to do whatever they can there, right? And right here, again, there's interplay between how these designs are. What you have regarding how quick it is to evacuate people or how long it takes can have an impact on building stability and vice versa. So those are two overarching... So from a designer perspective, you mean the stability in terms of how the structure is designed, what's the load-bearing capacity, what are the paths to spread the loads and stuff like that, what's the structural protection of the critical elements from the fire. And from the egress, it's how we shape the pathways or how... All of that. So let's say for evacuation, it's yeah. even explicitly analyzing that. So if you look at a lot of mm -hmm. what we do in a building, really the goal of the code, the first goal of the code is to get people from the immediate area next to the fire 
to some area that's somewhat protected by barriers yeah. or walls. That's something that happens in seconds and in a few minutes. When you get there, whether now the build, people can actually get out of the building or not is not an explicit part of the code. You don't actually analyze that, but we could, right? And, and it could be really relevant. Even within a floor, the provisions of the, provisions of the code are still prescriptive. So the code tells you have these many paths to your egress. So have, let's say, two, two independent means, and they might have to be separated by, the, by this much. But you don't actually analyze what's going to happen in a real fire. And from analysis, we know that you might have code compliant buildings. And at the same time, if there's a fire, just because of the unique design of the floors, not everyone might get out mm -hmm. safely. So the problem is these are, again, not explicit goals of the design. They're implicit. We do things to minimize the risks, but we don't explicitly design for them. So that's evacuation and building safely. Mm -hmm. But then you look at the other pieces of it. Certainly the nature and spread of the fire has an impact, right? And that's, again, something that is impacted by how we design the building in terms of the materials that we use, the layout of the building, an open building versus a compartmentalized building. And I'm not yeah. saying you have to do one versus the other. It's just the design decisions have an impact. You need to know what will happen in the building in terms of the course of the fire. Correct. And I don't know if it's a thing, but in Europe, we, will all, we are also for open plan compartments. We're using this traveling fire methodology to determine plenty of possible scenarios in a building to, to see how they will affect the structure of, of the building. Right. And it's something we start to truly consider. And it was also a big, not traveling fires because that's new. But uh, this compartment fire behavior was also a significant part of Eurocodes. And it was one of the like founding things in the Eurocodes that there is the standard fire resistance curve, but there are localized fires that you can calculate with it. And you take this compartment fire dynamics into equation. And uh, as an engineer, you truly craft that if you like it or not, but shaping your building, you're shaping the, the possible fire outcomes. Right. So, okay, the third thing is the nature and spread of fire. Is there a fourth thing? <laughs> sure, I can add. There yeah. are a few more things that are really relevant. Let's go, yeah. Um, I think another factor is really how common or how familiar a fire is. So if you think about that, when you have th put yourself in the shoe of a firefighter and you have to make decisions, these decisions are guided by your training or by your past experience. And those are heavily guided by the more frequent fires that we see. But if you come to it, how many really uh, large, uncontrolled or hard to control fires in these larger complex buildings in your lifetime? And how many of them do you see to be able to generalize from them? Luckily, not a lot. And that goes back to we're doing a great job in terms of doing other things with, with fire safety measures, with sprinklers and so on to really mitigate the risk. But... It also means that when you have a fire that looks different, you have less things to go by. And so that, that's where doing some of this analysis, doing some of this thinking ahead of time, and then seeing how that should impact operations and training of firefighters is really important. I think that's one area where we could basically cover that gap, which is a good gap that we don't see a lot of these large uncontrolled fires, 
but use what we know and model these things and play out different scenarios. And it's not something that just engineers do. It should be we're there and the firefighters are there and we're working together to see this tactic versus a different tactic, what would be the impact on firefighting? So I think that's another that's another factor there. And if I want to just add one more thing, I think it's the infrastructure of the building and how that allows for firefighting. And again, if you want to break it into components, how long does it take you to get to a place where you can effectively fight a fire? So for a lot mm-hmm. of these buildings, you have to walk up the stairs. And so if you put it put yourself in a, in, in a firefighter's shoe, you get to the building, you have very heavy equipment. Most elevators are shut down. Sometimes there's one that you could use. Mm-hmm. That's actually part of the discussion, having elevators that you could use to get to the place faster. But by and large, you're walking up the stairs. And as you're walking up the stairs, 20, 30, 40 stories, you also have people coming down the stairs because they need to get out. It might take you 30, 40 minutes to get to the place where you can start fighting the fire. That fire looks very different from something that Mm. you could have gotten to after five minutes. So that's important. And then when you get there, all the water that you get is what you get from your standpipe. And that's, again, that's not explicitly designed for that scenario. So, and it could be, right? So if the design is, for example, something that allows you to have enough water where you can fight a fire that's involving the entire floor, that's better than having a small amount of fire. Or if you have a building where, again, you're confident that the building is going to stand and you, you can assign more people to fighting the fire as opposed to evacuating the building. And so maybe you can even start going to floors adjacent and focus on mm-hmm. controlling the spread of the fire. And you let this floor burn. And to the extent that you can make a dent into it, you do, yeah. but you don't put yourself at, in as much risks. These are things that really shape firefighting in a, in a deep way. Yeah, if you don't design them, they're not going to be used. That's the bottom line. Right. So the five things you've mentioned, structural stability, egress and rescue, the nature of the fire spread, closing the knowledge gap between the designer and the firefighters. And the final one was the firefighting infrastructure. So these five things are how the designers would shape the firefighting context. And I think it's really powerful because there's a lot of things, in fact, in that list that we truly do. It's our choices. It's And it should be choice, not just the default value that's been placed in a place without giving a good thought. A standpipe in a small building will be of completely different relevance than a standpipe in a skyscraper where there is literally the, the single only way to give water. Okay, one more thing that I have noted for this is how the battleground has changed. I have the feeling that the design is not evolving as quickly as the problems are. <laughs> the, the, the codes are very slow, at least in Europe. In NFPA, it's a little bit different. And if you get 2,000 people to vote on a change, it gets implemented very quickly. I've been there, I've seen that. I was highly impressed by the process. But in general, the codes are very slow in adapting. And... If you take a look at the buildings today and 10 years ago, it's a completely different building. It's different materials. It's different building envelope. The facades have changed so much. And uh, different air tightness, for example. That's already something that completely changes the battleground, the, the, the whole fire environment in your building. 
And for me, the most interesting one is that buildings are small power plants today. It's not that you just have a few cables to distribute energy among a building. No, you want to generate the energy on your whole facade and hopefully even store it in the building in some power bank to sell it at a bigger price when it's needed. And these are recent objectives. Five years ago, I would not think about this. And today I have to consider it in a way in my design. Obviously, we are talking here about very specific uh, buildings. In, in some of your talks, you called them the high impact buildings, the ones that are like, it's not the buildings that you should go with prescriptive codes for, because it's this type of a building that really needs to be engineered to be safe. But the battleground is changing and it's changing so quickly. Is How do you feel about it? Is there a way we can cope with that? How we put the firefighter resiliency in this ever-changing uh, landscape? Um, a great question. I think the answer is performance-based design, right? Your design has to be relevant to your building. You have to look at the consequences that are applicable to your building and what is the behavior that's acceptable from that building in its context, in, in the place and in the city that it is. And what that design looks like should be different from building to building because mm -hmm. each of these buildings is a custom design. When you look at these larger, complex buildings, none of them is like the other one. They have similarities, but there are enough differences where for everything else in the design, we don't take one design and apply it to the other one. We analyze it for fire. It should be the same, but it does need a more consciousness of the fact that, okay, you do have these risks that are ever-changing and that performance-based design is something that does allow you to get to design that's safer and better. And then for everyone who's involved to have that conversation, I think there's that presumption of fire safety. I think this fire resistance terminology, you get two hours or three hours of fire resistance, people look at that and generally think, okay, that means three hours of standing in a fire. Whereas A, maybe that's actually not okay for a building. Maybe that shouldn't be acceptable, even if it's three hours. Mm -hmm. But B, that's, that presumption is not backed by fact. It depends on scenarios. In most cases, and I do want to highlight this, in most cases, the prescriptive design does get you building that is safe and you we, we don't have these frequent massive collapses of buildings and fire the codes mm -hmm. are doing something really well but we need to be conscious that we're living in ever more complex buildings and ever more complex environments and with a risk that is changing and so if we want to have resilience and if we want to avoid these low likelihood rare but high impact scenarios really the key answer is to go and explicitly design for safety, which is performance-based design. In one of the interviews with, with Benjamin Rolf, I've actually praised that codes are good. And for a second, I thought that's the end of my career as an engineer. After 11 years of, of doing performance-based engineer, I've praised codes for being great. It was in the context of rapid iterations of building a design in which the full PPD is, is just impossible to apply. When you want to have a hundred iterations of a building, you need some other ways to manage that. But I agree that uh, smart performance-based engineering and just give a ring to the name performance-based engineering, you're engineering performance 
that's the base of your engineering. You need to know what performance to expect. Right. And once you know that, you can do that. I truly think this is of immense value. I also wanted to ask you about this issues with fire testing, that we're testing materials, not systems, and so on. But I think we're a little running out of time. And I have one question that I want you to answer because you're the only person I know that can answer that. In your bio, I've read you've dealt a lot with earthquake engineering, wind engineering. From a perspective of like earthquake engineer, do you see a thing that exists in earthquake engineering that we do not see in fire engineering or some like strict difference that maybe could be applied to fire engineering? I've never talked to an earthquake engineer. We don't have earthquakes in Poland. So <laughs> maybe in other parts of the world, it's a bigger field in here. It's just the damage done by the mines in Silesia region of Poland. But it's really interesting because you're dealing with also with high impact accidents that destroy buildings and structural resiliency is important in this case. And I know that the firefighters who attend these events, they also care about structural stability of the buildings post-earthquake. One of my colleagues in the office is actually a, an active firefighter and he's a member of earthquake rescue uh, team of Poland. So when there's an, a huge uh, earthquake in somewhere in the world, they will just fly to there and uh, they have rescue dogs. And, and he told me a lot of things about structural stability and how this is the most important thing they assess when entering the area. So as an earthquake engineer or structural engineer that covers this seismic activities, you look at the fire engineering and what do you see? <laughs> I think the way we deal with earthquakes is actually a model for how we should be dealing with fire. So if you look at the context of seismic design, A, we've been running numbers. We've been doing actual engineering with real numbers okay. forever. <laughs> real numbers. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> that's, that's just not done as part of the code process for buildings in fire. So yeah. just doing you know, real engineering there is step one. And then when you look at that process, we ha we've had simpler approaches. And then as we've gone through improvements in our understanding of building behaviors and also our computational capabilities, we've been doing versions of performance-based design, at least I would say from 80s and 90s. And initially it was less formalized. And then over the years, we, we've accumulated so much knowledge and expertise where you could really do great uh, performance-based design for, for earthquakes. And what from that process, and it's really key, is performance-based design is basically a rational design. You do things that help mm. improve safety. But because of that, it's also an optimum design. It also means you don't do things that are just a cost and do not provide safety. And so you could say, I have the same batch of money. I'm going to use it in a more efficient way and get a safer building. Or if you have a same level of safety as your goal, you could get that, get there with less money because you're doing a more optimal design. And so I've done performance-based design in earthquakes and you go through the process and you can design a building that's more resilient and cheaper at the same time. And when you see that, why not do that? It's the same process that you see in, in FIRE. We've done studies, actually, ASCE and Charles Pankow Foundation 
led a study that we were part of along with uh, a few other engineering firms, uh, a few people from academia, really collaborative work. And we looked at four different buildings and what performance-based design would look for them versus prescriptive design. And in all four cases, I would say there, there were running themes. One of them was performance-based design is not scary. It doesn't put an impossible burden on the design. In some of the design, we also saw safety gaps in the prescriptive design. But in most cases, when you look at the performance-based design, it is more resilient and cheaper at the same time. And so that's something to really kind of keep in mind. And then I would say the one more way where seismic design should really be a model for us is even 10, 15 years ago, when you looked at uh, performance-based design, we did performance-based design for very select number of buildings. Most buildings were still prescriptive. We did real engineering, but it was not the same level of sophistication. Nowadays, when you go to a high seismic area and you look at any major building, performance-based design has become the norm. So for mm -hmm. fire, I'm hoping from going from a prescriptive design to looking at important buildings, high-consequence buildings with real engineering and doing the performance-based design. And I think that's something that really could benefit what we do. That's, that's perfect. It's uh, so in line with the previous <laughs> interviews you have not heard. It seems that... Uh... Smart minds in the fire science think alike, and I, I really enjoy that. Okay, Ali, thank you so much for your time. It was a huge pleasure to discuss structural fire resiliency with you. It's going to be an important topic for, for my podcast to reach the knowledge. You've mentioned no, closing the knowledge gap and reaching the, the firefighters is important. It's something I, I'm thinking out of this interview. So thank you so much for being here, for spending your time with me. And maybe you have some resources you want people to redirect to. I'm, I'm going to redirect them to that great webinar you gave on the structural fire resiliency. But if there's something else, you can let me know. Sure. I, I will certainly send you a few links where a lot of people are working on different aspects of this. And so there are resources out there. It's not like we want to start from zero. I also want to thank you, not just for having me here, but I think what you're doing here in having conversations with people who are touching fire safety from different aspects and perspective is really important because this is a problem that has many aspects and the solutions should be talking to each other and you're really helping doing that. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. And yeah, let's make the world a, a little bit safer together. Thank you, Ali. See you around. Thank you. And that's it. I hope you enjoyed this talk with Ali about how buildings can be resilient for fire and support firefighting. For me, it was a very interesting discussion with many good points on how can we improve the design, taking into account the factors that influence the, the firefighting actions, starting with how our decisions shape the battleground through the role of structural soundness of the building and uh, the structural stability of it, and how that influences firefighters um, actions and ability to rescue people the building and finishing with how performance-based engineering is the root for all the good solutions that Ali mentioned as I understood for Ali the fire performance-based engineering is the engineering itself and the way how we can design not only safer buildings 
but also cost-optimized buildings. That's a really profound thought. And I also admit in my own career, it's very rare that we would improve safety systems in the building, putting an additional cost on the building. We usually on our way to the better solutions, found ways to make the building cheaper or the solutions cheaper. So it was always a win-win solution for the safety and for the investor. And I'm really happy that he so explicitly put that on the plate, that performance-based engineering does not only allow you to make the building safer, but only gives this economical incentive to, to pursue this goal and having my experience, 11 years in, in building designs, in, in solving practical issues with buildings, I know that sometimes without economical incentive, there's very little you can do. So thanks, Ali. That's a really great thought for all of us. And yeah, I hope this can be placed into the practice and this can be used. As I've mentioned in the intro, Ali has given a lot of practical recommendations that fulfill the prophecies or the thoughts that Brian Mitchum has left in the episode 20. So if you haven't heard episode 20, that's the moment you switch into that and listen to Brian Mitchum because these two episodes accompany each other so well. And yeah, I really hope this starts a discussion into how can we build the fire safe world a little better and a little more optimized in a little more reasonable way without spending excessive amount of resources on solutions that do not provide anything and truly focusing on objectives that we would all consider as the safety objectives. Thank you so much for listening. As usual, please share this episode or this podcast with a friend, with a colleague. And I would love to reach as many people as possible with the messages we have in here. If you think it was valuable for you to spend an hour listening to this episode or this podcast, and it may be also worth for your colleagues. So please share the knowledge about the existence of this show. And... If you're striving for more fire science knowledge and entertainment, please join me next Wednesday. And yeah, there will be another great episode waiting for you there. So yeah, <laughs> see you next Wednesday. Thanks for being here. Thanks for all of your support. Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.